Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome to episode 60 of The Hedgehog and the Fox. A young man inherits a house on an island in the middle of the raging waters of a mighty river, from a mysterious great-uncle. But to satisfy the conditions of the will, the man must remain on the island for three months, with no other human company save his great-uncle Malikwa's taciturn servant. And then there will be a further obligation to fulfil. For the young man, the experience is disorientating. Early in his tale, he says... Standing at the tip of the island, on that prow where the wild waters split, I had only the water's vastness in front of me. The entire landscape was nothing but water in motion, and I was alone, immobile at the centre of this liquid rush, surging with torrential floods that moment by moment swelled at my feet. At the same time, I felt within me the slow ascent of an impersonal force, as if the power and grandeur of the river had suffused me with their own wildness, so much so that I was becoming a river creature. Even my terror had become inhuman, as the current already coursed through me. I was water, water moved within me, and I no longer felt the viscous ground of the island vanish along with me beneath his moving liquid mass. The book is set in the Camargue in southern France in the early 19th century and was written in the 1940s by French novelist Henri Bosco. Despite Bosco being a major figure in mid-century French literature, the book remained unpublished in English until this year, when my guest, Joyce Sonana's translation, appeared in the New York Review of Books classic series. For Joyce, Translating the book and getting it published in English has been a labour of love, a quest dating back decades. I'll let Joyce tell her own story. Like Malicroix, it too involves a great river, the Mississippi, and another remote house, in the Catskill Mountains in upstate New York, which is where Joyce spoke to me from a few weeks ago. I began by remarking that in a sense, She's been translating nearly all her life, having begun soon after her Orthodox Jewish parents emigrated with her from Cairo to Brooklyn. 
My family was French-speaking and Arabic-speaking. We came from Cairo, Egypt. I was under two when we first arrived. My parents spoke to me in French, but I very, very quickly learned English on the street. I'm not quite sure how, but I did. They acted as if they didn't speak English. They did actually speak English a little bit, but they, they, they acted as if they didn't. And so I felt very early on that I needed to be their interpreter. And so that was the job I gave myself. And I loved it. I loved being able to move between the two languages. They never taught me Arabic. They only used Arabic when they didn't want me to understand things. So there was always the mystery of this other language that I didn't know, and that fascinated me as well. And your father had been a translator and interpreter himself when he, when you, your parents had lived in Cairo. Yes. He yes. had been translating between Arabic and French. Yes. And he continued to do that. Well, he, he translated between Arabic and English in the States. That wasn't his formal job, but he took on freelance translation projects. And so he would sit at our kitchen table and spread out big Arabic dictionaries. And mostly what he did were um, little advertisements, cigarette ads, silly things. And I would sit there and I would try to help him with some idiomatic English expressions. We had a lot of fun doing that, a lot of fun. And you talk about wanting to speak American English with no accent to be absolutely naturalized. You had that very understandable kind of awkwardness and embarrassment about, you know, being taken as a foreigner or someone who came from elsewhere who didn't who didn't speak English. Yeah. So at the time, there was not a community of Egyptian Jews in New York. So it wasn't as if I belonged to any group as some more recent immigrants feel when they come to the United States. You have Spanish-speaking groups or Chinese-speaking groups or whatever. So we didn't really have that. So in order to belong anywhere, I wanted to belong to what I thought of as the American community. And also, we were in Brooklyn, and there was a Brooklyn accent, and I studiously avoided having a Brooklyn accent as well. So I really wanted to be able to go anywhere. So you were Jewish, but you didn't speak Yiddish. So fellow right. Jews would be sort of curious about that. Yes. You yes. came from Cairo, but you didn't speak Arabic and you weren't, you weren't an Arabic person. Right. So you, you had sort of multiple layers of, I guess, challenge or identity questions yes, that you kept so. being asked as a child. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so I took refuge, I suppose, in English, in, in the English language. That was where I found a kind of identity and home. And I wanted mastery of it. So I worked very hard at it. But all the time, French was the language that you spoke at home. Is that, yes. is that true? Yes, absolutely. I had a brother who was born three or four years after we came to the States. And my parents told me that the baby does not speak English. You must speak to the baby in French. So I spoke to him in French and uh, yeah. I guess again, it was a language sort of displaced from its 
you know metropolitan home so it was it was the french of of cairo that you yes. were that your parents would have spoken so yes. do you remember your your earliest sort of sense of you know what what is this language that we speak at home well i knew it was french i knew absolutely that it was french but then years later I, so i didn't um I didn't know how to read or write in French, which is also very peculiar. So I was learning to read and write in English, but I had no idea of written French until I studied it in junior high school. Then I learned all kinds of things like expressions that I thought were one word were actually three or four words. The French French was, was different from the French we spoke at home. I recently actually translated a novel written by another Egyptian Jew in French. The thrill for me of that novel was that that was the French I knew, that I, I had never actually read the French that I spoke until I read this novel. So although you, you made English literature really your main focus as a career, issues about language and going between languages and identity in language have really been a have really been a sort of preoccupation all the way through. Is, that, is that fair? I would say so. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I started out studying primarily Victorian literature, and I moved from Victorian literature to post-colonial literatures. And so when I studied some of those texts, I was looking at how English became a second language and then a primary language for colonized peoples. And I realized that actually I was a colonized person as well. Now, I have to make a double confession. Although I studied French literature at university, I had never read Bosco until I um, was preparing for this. And I read him in English through your translation, which I very much enjoyed. And I had never read Gaston Bachelard, ah. who was, who were, I mean, so they were both names, right. but I had never read either of them. I really love the story of how this book, Malicroix, comes to be in print, the way that, you know, the, the long quest that you've pursued. And really, I guess we have to go back to when you were in your, in your 20s? 19, I think, yeah. Right. So tell me how it began and why Gaston, and maybe, I guess we got to introduce Bachelard as well before we get on to Bosco, so, because he was a sort of the, the entry point. Um. Yeah, so Bachelard was a French uh, philosopher, a phenomenologist, who actually started out as a philosopher of science, who then somehow took a turn in his work and became a philosopher of poetics, a philosopher of art, of language. The book that I came to him by was The Poetics of Space, La Poétique de l'Espace, and it was given to me by a friend when I was about 19, at the time, I was living by myself in an apartment I had rented. I had left home very um, precipitously, very much against my family's wishes. And this was a book about home and about the ways people experience home. And it was profoundly moving to me to read it. Yeah, it's a hard book for me to talk about. He talks about what he calls felicitous space, intimate space, and the book explores houses, 
parts of houses, attics and cellars, bureaus, drawers, corners, nooks, all kinds of things like that. And as his evidence, he quotes from poets and novelists, mostly French poets and novelists. And the main writer that he quotes from in this book is Henri Bosco, and the central book that he quotes from is Malicroix. So um, I read Bachelard, I was attracted to his vision of the world, and I was intrigued by this book that he kept on referring to. And the particular aspect of the book that he talked about is the house that the narrator dwells in for a few months and the protective aspect of the house. So I wanted to read the book. I thought I could find it in English. I didn't. I found it in French. My French was, you know, I understood my family's French, but reading literary French was a whole other thing for me. I read it. I didn't really understand it. And I thought, well, in order to grasp what's going on in this book, in order to know why Bachelard loved it so much, I have to translate it. So that's what I started doing when I was in my 20s. That's a really interesting story. But, you know, because you're you're drawn to it through another text, you're fascinated by it. But there's something kind of resistant about it. It's not in English. And it's actually not yielding up its meaning very readily. And so you decide to sit down and translate it. I mean, did you literally get a big dictionary and a copy of the text and sit down and begin to, you know, begin at page one to make your way through it? Exactly what I did. I I didn't even have I didn't have um, a good French dictionary. So I went out and I bought myself uh, Larousse, French to French, and then a Castles, I think, French to English dictionary. So I had these two big dictionaries. We didn't have the internet back then, which um, made things much easier recently. And yeah, I sat down with the book and I think uh, I, I still have my longhand translations and I just worked on it word by word. And at some point, did you think that you would try and get this published? Was that was that something which came along as a sort of later yeah, thought or yeah. once you'd begun, did you think, well, I'm not going to spend all this this time and effort and not, not try and get it into print? I don't really know when or how I started thinking about putting it into print. I'm really unclear about that. I mean, I had always had fantasies of being a writer. That was my own personal dream. But how I decided to try to find a publisher for this, I really don't know. But at one point, I did actually take a summer class in translation. I was an undergraduate at the time, and this was a a class offered at the City University of New York with a very wonderful Spanish-to-English translator named Gregory Colovacos, who died of AIDS some years ago. And I think he encouraged me, and maybe it was being in that class that made me decide to try to find a publisher, and so I did. You were told by one agent the American public is not ready for a book like this. Correct, yes, yeah. Yeah, and I wrote to major publishers. I wrote to Knopf and New Directions and Pantheon and Grove some of them 
it seemed to me, actually looked at what I sent them and seemed to find it somewhat interesting, but nobody wanted to do it. And there had been some books of Bosco that had already been translated into English, three or four books in the 1950s, but those books had kind of disappeared already. So we're talking, I'm in the 1970s by now. Yeah, no one wanted to do it. Nobody thought it was marketable. Now, because because Bosco is still not a particularly well known name, maybe maybe you could say a little bit to introduce him to people who who haven't come across him before. Yeah, so he lived from I think eighteen eighty eight to nineteen seventy six. He was an incredibly prolific writer. He published something like thirty volumes, mostly fiction but several volumes of poetry, several volumes of essays. He had a fairly large following in France, I would say, through the 40s and the 50s. He received all kinds of French literary awards. One of his novels, L'Enfant et la Riviere, is probably the most popular young adult book in France. It sold over three million copies. Just last year, a two years ago, I think, a graphic novel came out, uh, a version of it. So I wouldn't say he's a major figure in French literature, but he's a, a well-known figure and, and very loved by those who read him. His name was mentioned in connection with Nobel. I mean, I know a lot of people's names are mentioned, but when he was at his peak, he was regarded as being of, you know, that sort of stature, the kind of writer who might win the Nobel Prize. Yeah. The French writers of his time that have become known tend to have been the more politically engagé writers. Yeah. He was very politically not engagé, right? <laughs> He really focused on a very internal, spiritual, sometimes maybe even phantasmic kinds of stories. And so I think that didn't really enter into the mainstream somehow. And yet it's a very important part of literary life. I think he's closer to certain English writers than he is to the French writers that we know. I was thinking today that we need to put him in the same category as the Brontes, for example, and Thomas Hardy. Because of this elemental kind of perception of nature? Absolutely, and yeah. And a, a, a high romanticism that's in yeah. his work. But absolutely, the, the portrayal of nature and the relationship between humans and nature is very yeah. strong in his work. And when I was preparing for talking to you today, Joyce, I was reading an article where the writer was talking about Bosco's admiration for Conrad and saying that um, Bosco had been very struck by reading Conrad and had said sort of slightly tongue in cheek, he wanted to make to be a sort of freshwater Conrad, you know, because he didn't have the, the same connection of the sea. But the, the, the serious point, I guess, is he he is very, very much 
attached to his native soil and the elements, and particularly associated with the south of France. That's, yes. that's something which is worth mentioning, isn't it? Yes, so absolutely. Not, not a Parisian writer in any sense. Not at all, not at all. So he was born in Provence, in Avignon, grew up in Avignon, and he lived in many places during his lifetime. And actually, this is one of the most interesting things to me. He lived in Morocco from 1930 to 1955. And Malikwa, for example, was written while he was in Morocco. But most of his novels are set in Provence. So he returns to the landscape of his childhood. But I think it's conditioned by his experience in North Africa, and particularly by his experience of the desert. So it's in Morocco that he gets to know the desert, and he puts the desert into his fiction in a transformed kind of way. So we're in a desert of a different sort. We're not in a sandy desert, but exactly. we are in a, a kind of wasteland exactly. that is the Camargue. Now, for people yeah. who, who don't know where the Camargue is and what, what, what it's like. Can you sort of, because you visited it as part of your, um, your research and in preparing yes. the translation. So tell me a little bit about how, how you experienced it and if it matched the sort of Bosco vision of it. Absolutely. So the Camargue is a delta. It's the region that is between the two branches of the Rhone that separate at Arles. And so it's simply a watery, wasteland. There's uh, very little habitation there. There are vast fields, vast stretches of water, and it's um, populated by wild black bulls, white horses, and pink flamingos. That's the trademark of the Camargue. It's very, very, very beautiful. It's very haunting. It's evoked in Malikwa. And when I read the descriptions in the novel and I did translate them, I felt as if in order to really understand what he was talking about, I needed to go and be in that landscape. And being in that landscape absolutely helped me to be able to render the book. I'm not sure that any of the specific words were any different but yet my, my knowledge of the place informed my translation somehow. We talked about your first encounter with the text and translating it, sitting down and trying to find a publisher and publishers weren't interested. And then you set it aside for a long time yeah. and then you came back to it in, in more recent years. Now, maybe you can tell me, first of all, why you went back to it and then what was your response to the work that you had put down when you were in your yeah, 20s? Yeah, good question. So why did I go back to it? It was something I always wanted to do. I never forgot about it. I carried it around with me. I carried the book around with me. I carried the dictionaries with me. And I carried my initial translation and the rejection letters with me. I always had them with me. And I moved quite a bit. And I became an English professor. I got a PhD and I taught literature. And in 2012, I was eligible for a sabbatical and I needed to propose a project. 
I was doing research on all different kinds of things, but nothing really compelled me as a year-long project. And I was also spending time in a small farmhouse, the house which I'm living in now, in upstate New York. And the house felt to me the way the house in Malicroix feels to the narrator, very much the way Bachelard had described the house as a, as a refuge and a place of protection. And the reason that I was spending a lot of time in this house was that I had been displaced from my home and my life in New Orleans by Hurricane Katrina. So for 2012, I decided I would propose Malikwa as my, as my project. And I got out my old translation and started working on it. So one thing I want to add is that I hadn't realized this at the time until I started working on it again, that living in New Orleans was very much like living in the Camargue. We were also at the mouth of a great river, and there was landscape near New Orleans that was actually very much like the landscape in the Camargue. Also, I was displaced by a dreadful flood, and one of the huge themes in this novel is the fear of a river flooding. So my life somehow brought me into circumstances that helped me to understand the book more fully. So you had this project in 2012 and you were displaced. And so you you open up your translation and what do you what do you make of the the work you'd done those years before? Did you think goodness there's a lot to do here or did you think actually I came pretty close the first time? I think I thought there's a lot to do here. I had only done maybe 40 or 50 pages and the book is 300 pages. So the first paragraph of the book, I think it's a beautiful first paragraph. I worked on that first paragraph, I cannot tell you for how long. So I had my, my original draft of it, and it was okay, but it, it was nowhere like what the final first paragraph looks like now. I think my first draft was much more French-sounding than English-sounding. I was slavishly following the syntax and um, the diction of the French. Now I think I've found something that's a little bit more English-sounding. Was it Bachelard who called it a vast prose poem? Or Correct. Perhaps it was you. I'm not, no, I'm not sure who, who, whose description that was. But I would call it that too, but that's what Bachelard said, yeah. It's difficult, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's notoriously difficult to take poetry from one language and transplant it into another. And, you know, when you're working on such a big canvas as you are in this novel, I wondered, did it take you some time to, to sort of find the, the right rhythms that worked in English, to find the tone of voice, to capture the, the lyricism, you know, to the, the evocations of the natural world, which are ever-changing and are so detailed? Did, was, was that something that there was a time when you sort of thought this isn't quite there and then you thought, yeah, I, I, I'm now in the right sort of rhythm to make this work as English. I'm not sure that I've found the right rhythm completely, but I think I've come close. 
the main thing I worked on was the was the sound of the language, the rhythm of the language and the sounds of the words. Bosco was a musician, and he said of his own writing that the most important part of it was the music. So I guess I would say that in my early translation, I was focused on the meaning because I didn't understand the meaning. By the time I came back to it, the meaning was not so hard, although there were some passages that were incredibly difficult. But what really mattered to me was the sound. And I started by using words that were similar to the French words. So I, he uses a lot of Latin words. And we have those Latin words in English. And I started out by using them. And I felt attached to that. I thought that's the right way to do it because that's the sound of the French. But after a while, I realized, no, there's a different kind of music in English. And I started substituting Anglo-Saxon words where I could find them for the Latin words. One of my friends said, you, you are finding the poetry that's different from Bosco's poetry, but it's an English poetry. The rhythm, too, I think I worked for some kind of Anglo-Saxon rhythm. Thinking about, I was thinking a lot about the poetry of Hopkins. That was in my mind to aspire to in some way. You weren't, I think, working to a deadline, were you? No. So how did you know you were finished? Ah, I didn't, no. Um, so I did eventually, so when I did have a publisher, right? So I did my 2012, 2013, I worked on it and put it aside for a while. And then I went back to it, did find a publisher, did get a contract with New York Review Books, and I did have a deadline. And so I met the deadline. But then the book sat with the publisher for quite some time. And after a year, I asked the editor, and he hadn't even read it yet, I asked him if I could come back to it. And he said, oh, yes, of course, absolutely. So I went back to it again and spent a, a good month going over it. And then I felt that it was finished. Then a copy editor worked on it. So there were several stages um, to finishing it. So let me ask you, how did you feel when you got a contract for this, having, <laughs> having had a relationship that lasted decades? And I mean, you, there must have been points where you, you thought that it'll never see the light of day in, in print in English. So how did it feel when you got an acceptance? It, was, it felt like a miracle of sorts. Um, it was very, very, very exciting to me and um, cause for great celebration, just great celebration. I think the thing that pleases me the most about having it published now is that this is a book that I lived with for so long and I really didn't know anybody else who had read it. A few of my friends read some of my drafts, but I really wanted to be able to share it with people. So it's very thrilling to, to have that now. And do you think this is a good time to read it, given that the, the book is, I mean, this, is, this may seem rather glib, but I've, I've seen at least one reviewer sort of mention that this is a, the perfect book to read in a period of lockdown. But I guess it's, there's, there's quite a challenge to doing that in that it's about a radical 
confrontation with oneself and with loneliness and the contents of one's head? I think it's a good book for the moment. I think it really is because it shows the redemptive value of isolation and solitude. I know that some of what I want during this period is escape, complete escape from solitude. But if one can settle down enough to read this book now, I think it has some great rewards. I think it really does. Yeah. It seemed to me it's a book one can disappear into, really, and be completely surrounded, enclosed within this world, this landscape, these thoughts, mm. this kind of incantatory prose. You know, it, it does really build a very separate, distinctive world, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of my friends recently said she felt as if she was living on the island with the main character. And that's another wonderful aspect of the book, right? It's it's an island. It's a tiny house on a tiny island in the middle of a big river. So he really creates this absolutely in enclosed world. And if we can bring ourselves to enter it, it, it has great, great rewards inside there. I was talking to Joyce Sonana about her translation of Henri Bosco's Malicroix, which was recently published in the New York Review of Books classic series. You can find out more at nyrb.com. If you've enjoyed this interview, you'll find more than 60 others available at thehedgehogandthefox.com. You can subscribe to the programme wherever you get your podcasts, catch up on any interviews you've missed, and leave a review. I'll be back again soon with another programme. So until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.